Please listen carefully. Carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't already, please press pause and take 15 seconds to subscribe for free to the Connors newsletter in the show description and join our growing community of reasonable Americans. There's all sorts of great articles over there. For those who have already subscribed, you'll know that we recently welcomed a new writer to the Connors Forum, Yevgeny Simkin. Uh, Yevgeny is super smart and a great writer, and he will contribute newsletter pieces on topics such as social media, misinformation and disinformation, America's troubled democracy, and more. Just to give you a taste of his writing, here's an excerpt from a wonderfully insightful piece that he wrote for our friends over at The Bulwark titled, Social Media is the Problem, and I would encourage you to go over to The Bulwark, subscribe to their site, and read the piece. But uh, here's a little excerpt. So he says, quote, Let's take a short walk down memory lane. It's 1995. A man stands on a busy street corner yelling vaguely incoherent things at the passerby. He's holding a placard that says, The end is nigh. Repent. You come upon this guy while out getting the paper. How do you feel about him? You might feel some flavor of annoyance. Most people would also feel compassion for him, as he's clearly suffering from something. No reasonable person would think of convincing this man that his point of view is incorrect. This isn't an opportunity for an engaging debate. Now fast forward to today. In terms of who this guy is and who you are, absolutely nothing has changed. And yet here you are, arguing with him on Twitter or Facebook. And you yourself are being brought to the brink of insanity. But you can't seem to stop. End quote. Simkin goes on to argue that social media has contributed to the, quote, tearing apart of our social fabric and insidious malware slowly corrupting our society in ways that are extremely difficult to quantify, but the effects of which are evident all around us, end quote. We're very excited to welcome Yevgeny Simkin to the Connors Forum team. Look forward to his first piece later this summer. And again, I would encourage all of you to press pause and go ahead and subscribe to the Connors newsletter. All right. Well, you'll remember a few episodes ago, we were talking about the possibility of the Thwaites Glacier, known as the Doomsday Glacier, in Antarctica collapsing in the next decade or so. We had Dr. Richard Alley, a professor of geosciences at Penn State University, on the show to help us understand what had scientists so worried about the glacier and the implications of that story. Well, since then, there's been another collapse in a different part of Antarctica, the Conger Ice Shelf in East Antarctica, which is about the size of Rome, was confirmed to have collapsed in mid-March. Dr. Richard Alley has come back on the show today to help us understand this new troubling climate change-related story and what it all means. In segment two, we are joined by Zach Stein from the company Carbon Collective, and he's going to tell us about how people can invest in green, sustainable stock and bond portfolios built for solving climate change. But first up is Dr. Richard Alley. Richard, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we just had you on recently, and I try to give our guests, you know, a few months off before I ever ask them to come back on, but things keep collapsing. 
So, you know, like if you guys could keep Antarctica together and, and keep it from disintegrating, we wouldn't have to meet so much like this. Oh, if I knew how to do that, I'd be working on it. <laughs> yeah, this one. So, so you do you know John Scott Haldane? I do not. So okay, um, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, um, Scottish, uh, born in in Edinburgh. Uh, he figured out among many other things, he figured out that. Um, why divers, scuba divers, got the bends and how they could ascend, so not getting the bends and what you do to save them. He figured out oxygen therapy. So if you're having troubles breathing, giving you oxygen to save your life, which we've seen so much of recently. He figured out what's happening to high-altitude um, persons and why they're having troubles. And he figured out that carbon monoxide is what was killing coal miners, that a canary was more sensitive to the carbon monoxide than the people were. And if the miners took a canary down into the mine, they had an early warning system. Now, the canary is more sensitive than you are. So if your canary gets in trouble, it's always bad for the canary. And they actually built cages that when the canary got in trouble would give it good air and bring it back to life so so when the canary's in trouble it doesn't prove that you're going to die but it's a warning that's what just happened in antarctica it's a canary in the coal mine it's not saying that antarctica is going to fall apart but something that's on the very sensitive end in antarctica just did fall apart yes it, it seems very worrying so basically i'm gonna Every few months when I get one of these reports, I'm going to hyperventilate and then I'm going to call Richard Alley. I'm going to bring you back on the program and you're going to talk us off the ledge. So, all right. So very briefly, I'm not going to, we're not going to relitigate this. We had a whole, whole episode on this, but uh, if you go back in the archive and you listen to our episode with Richard Alley a few episodes ago, we were talking about the possibility of the doomsday glacier, which is in West Antarctica, correct? Yep. The possibility of that collapsing, but Something did just collapse. So, Richard, if you could tell us what just happened in East Antarctica. Yep. So, so if you go down south from and from Australia and a little to the right, or you go south from Africa and a little bit to the left, eventually you'll hit a little ice shelf sitting down there, the Conger Ice Shelf. Uh, the Conger Ice Shelf was a pretty small one. Uh, remember, again, the ice shelf is the floating extension. The ice is float down to the ocean. If the ocean and the air are really cold and the ice is not too busted up, it remains attached while flowing over the ocean. And um, you almost always it runs aground on an island or something that's helping hold it in. Um, and so this is a little one. It's not fed by a whole lot of, of really fast flowing ice. It's not really thick, but it was there and it was sort of a, a ratty one. And it's been getting more beaten up recently and it completely fell apart. So that's, it's, it's sort of spectacular pictures. You can find them online and it was there and then it's not there. <laughs> Yeah, there's some really, uh, for our listeners, if you go online and it doesn't take much of a, a Google search, put in Conger Ice Shelf, 
And I believe there's a March 12th picture where the, the shelf is there and it's intact. And then March 21st, there's a hole where the shelf used to be. And so uh, it's pretty obvious that it's gone. So I, I do want to get into um, what this means because you, you told us before that the, the Doomsday Glacier, it, I guess it's keeping a lot of uh, stuff from flowing into the sea and taking up more space, correct? And, and, and causing sea levels to rise. So you're not as concerned with this one, as you said, because it's not as much of a barrier, but what it might portend for the rest of Antarctica and for the rest of the globe is what we're concerned about. So um, so tell us about uh, why it might have collapsed in the first place. Right. So probably the, the things ice shelves like it really cold on top. Um, they don't like meltwater wedging the cracks open. And ice shelves like it really cold underneath. And the ice shelves are happiest if they're sitting in the coldest water that is existing in the world ocean in any large volume. These are the waters that are made in the winter when sea ice grows and they're the brine that's rejected from the sea ice. And this makes ice shelves, they're sort of picky in that basically anything you do for an ice shelf is either neutral or it's bad. There's not much you can do to help them. If you change the winds, if you change the currents, if you change almost anything, the ice shelf is already living in the coldest water in the world ocean. So you can either bring in something that's similarly cold or it's warmer. And probably this one has been hit with some changes in winds, some changes in currents. Um, there's been recently uh, some loss of sea ice as well, which may point to the wind changing, the currents changing. In addition, the sea ice is, you know, frozen ocean, and the ice shelf had to push the sea ice out of the way, and that gives a little pushback on the ice shelf that makes the ice shelf happier. Uh, the ice, the sea ice keeps the big waves away from the ice shelf, so if, if the wave has to go through uh, 100 miles of sea ice, it sort of gets damped out, and so that's been down recently. And some combination of changing winds and changing currents and a little bit warmer on top and a little bit warmer underneath and then not having the sea ice putting back. And then maybe the whether this really broke up because of the atmospheric river, I think we're still trying to figure out. But there was this incredible blast of hot air into Antarctica. And if you've been following the the, the breathless news, um, temperatures were broken by just, you know, 40 degrees, 50 degrees above normal. It's just crazy hot. Um, so some combination of all of this got to this ice shelf, which was already a little bit shaky and took it out. Yeah. I mean, as you as you mentioned, it had been declining for years, right? Exactly. So it, yeah. it was not happy to begin with. It's one of these that we have moderately good data on some of the ice shelves. A lot of them we don't. And I don't think people have not taken cruises to this one. They haven't been running submersibles underneath it and mapping the thing. So the, um, in part, because it's really stinking hard to get to, uh, and in part, because it's just, this one falling apart is not that important for the long-term sea level rise. And so we don't have the sort of pound on the table. Has this one been there for a long time? Has it not? Um, the, the Larsen ice shelves on the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, the A and then the 
B collapsed. The B had been there for 10,000 years before it collapsed. The A, not nearly so long. So some of them formed in the last thousand years and then went away again. Others have been there for a very, very long time. And we, I don't think we have the data on this one. Um, it would not surprise me if it's a, a, a younger one, if it's a newer one, because it's a pretty small hanging on by the edge one. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about what this might be a sign of or a symbol of moving forward. So um, I was reading and again, I'm not a scientist. And so I'm reading, you know, popular publications sort of distilling science for the general audience. So you tell me if I've got this right. But my understanding is we're used to seeing much of this activity in West Antarctica and, and West Antarctica being impacted by climate change. But we're somewhat surprised by East Antarctica. Is that correct? And, and if so, why is that the case? Yeah. So East Antarctica is a lot colder overall. Um, it's, you know, the in West Antarctica, the the it isn't quite as high in the middle. The winds that come draining down in the winter aren't quite as cold. The coldest places are really, really high in East Antarctica. And so they're really cold on top and these really cold winds come down. Um, so some of it is just East Antarctica is colder. Some of it is that if you take the ice off, um, West Antarctica is would actually have a lot of marine basins. And that sort of helps us in that it can't raise sea level quite as much because some of the ice, not all, is already displacing ocean water. Um, but it turns out that that's a configuration where it can dump icebergs like crazy, and those icebergs can include ice that's not now floating, and that can raise sea level a lot in a hurry. Most of East Antarctica, the Bottom comes up above sea level as you go in. Think of um, Australia with a, a glacier on it. There's a few basins that are a little worrisome, but um, so most of it is a little more stable for for perturbations. And then I think the third reason, it's huge. It's hard as heck to get to, and I don't think we've looked as carefully. And there's a lot of things coming out recently. Uh, my colleague, Luke Trussell, just has a paper on on lakes in the um, Lambert Glacier, the Amory Ice Shelf, and them draining, their surface melt. There's things going on in East Antarctica that we hadn't looked at. And now there's these really bright scientists like Luke Trussell who are actually looking at them, and they're finding that there is action over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, some some worrying action, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about when size matters. That's a weird way to say it. But uh, so, you know, you, you talk about breathless, um, you know, media coverage. You hear it's the size of New York City, right? But um, size doesn't necessarily matter if it's already floating in the ocean. But it, it, I think it does matter in terms of what it's stopping from continuing to flow into the ocean, right? So, So how does size play into the problematic nature of different ice shelves. Right. So, so the, the, the I mentioned the Larsen ice shelves, um, the ice behind them very quickly, it's draining down off of the, the, the Antarctic peninsula, which is sort of kind of the, the extension of the Andes. So it's just glaciers smeared over the top of a, of a big mountain range. There's not a lot of ice there because the rock is really high underneath the changes at the coast pretty soon if you go inland 
it doesn't care that much about what's going on at the coast. And so if you want to raise sea level a lot, you need to get to places that there's a lot of ice that is not melting. And you especially need to get that, that ice that is worried about changes at the coast. Because we just don't think that Antarctica is going to get warm enough in my lifetime that it's going to melt from above fast enough to make a big difference. In fact, just the balance of snowfall and melting on top, Antarctica may grow because the warmer air will carry more snowfall in. And so we're concerned about those places that there's a lot of ice that can thump in the ocean that care a lot about what happens at the coast where the ocean can affect it really fast. And this is not one of those places as far as we've got now. There are some. So watching this one, you watch the the Lambert, the Amory Ice Shelf, it could do more. The Totten Glacier around the other way in East Antarctica, there's people starting to watch that one. We don't think this is a run for the hills problem. We don't think it comes as soon as the the Doomsday Glacier at Thwaites over in West Antarctica, but it's connected to basins that could dump icebergs and raise sea level a lot. So so the we're still focusing, we're trying to Find out the ones that we have to understand that glacier, that ice shelf, that drainage, because that particular one could do bad things. And then we're doing the what can we learn from the others? Because we just we'd really, really like to know enough that we can tell you how worried or not worried to be. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we chatted about this the last time. Predicting when something will break is hard. And you, whether it's opening a ketchup packet at a fast food restaurant or whether it's dropping a coffee cup on the floor, we all have experience with it's not breaking, it's not breaking, it's not breaking. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and the ketchup packet squirted because you weren't careful or you opened the cracker wrapper and the whole thing open and the crackers fall on the floor or you drop that coffee cup and it bounced and that one smashed to smithereens predicting when things will break is hard and it's hard for everybody everywhere for everything all the time and engineers work really really hard to make sure that the things they design and the things they build are not really really close to breaking Okay. And so we're trying to predict, will this one break and when and exactly how much warming can we do before it breaks? So we're going to learn everything we can from these smaller ones that don't matter in the hope that we can give you useful results for the ones that do. So real quick, before I move on to ask you the other questions, uh, when Richard Alley, who is the specialist in this area, uh, when this happens, does your phone light up? Are people calling you? Are you getting uh, bombarded with emails? Uh, what happens when when this event occurs in, in Richard Alley's household? Yeah, less than it used to. I had a couple of inquiries and I was happy to hear from you. Uh, there was a day that a lot of people tended to call and whether I'm just old and no one cares or whether um, I try not to give you know, 
provocative quotes, I try yeah, to explain yeah. it. And you let us chat long enough that we can work through it and see what matters and what doesn't. But a lot of the news lives at the speed of one quote, and it better be short. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, one of the nice things, and I've actually repeated this a number of times in my classes, um, in my in other podcasts I've done with people talking about environmental issues, something you said actually really stuck with me, which was, um, I don't know if it was something you said, or I think it was something you said, but one of the conversations we've had, which was, this notion that like you, you don't want to be too alarmist and put too much of a number on it because you give the people the sense that if you pass a certain point, then all is lost, but all is never lost, right? It's a matter of how bad the future is going to be as a matter of degree, right? So we can always make progress, right? Absolutely unequivocally, right. you're right. The, the, whenever we decide to stop warming, we just miss the worst. Right. Right. Because this is clear that the costs of warming go up faster than the temperature does. Right. And the first little bit of warming was virtually free. We have built a world. We've built infrastructure. We're used to variability. We're used to handling some changes. A little change, you just handle it. And, you know, for sea level rise, they call it nuisance flooding. And yeah, it's a nuisance. And then now you start talking about building a wall or moving the road or putting something to keep the salt water out of your, your drinking water. And all of a sudden the price is going up. So the, the price goes up a lot faster than the temperature, a lot faster than the sea level. So whenever we decide to deal with it, we just miss the worst. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. So, uh, you know, I'll ask you two questions here to kind of uh, put a bow on this. But, um, you know, on a scale of one to ten, I mean, you've called it a canary in the coal mine. So while we're talking about it not being, you know, one of the worst ones, it's not the doomsday glacier. It's not displacing more water than it was before. At the same time, you said it was a warning. Right. So uh, if you were talking to Congress or you were talking to somebody in a position of importance or anybody who's who should be motivated to act on this, or at least think this is important. Why is this a warning? You make your, your pitch. Right. So it's, it's, this is a warning because it shows us that we're moving in the direction. We've, we've, we've lost the Larson B. We lost the Larson A. We've lost a couple others. Now we've lost one in East Antarctica. We lost some in Greenland. It's, we keep doing this and we're getting closer to the place where you lose the ones that matter. And yes, it is absolutely true. I do the, the canary in the coal mine. You can keep mining after the canary keels over because you're not as sensitive as the canary is. And you might get by with that. You might. <laughs> but do you want to bet on that? <laughs> right. Uh, the, the way you described that, uh, that they just, that they designed a cage that would sort of resuscitate the canary. That sounds like torture, right? <laughs> it's like, bring you to the edge of death, bring you back. And then, Hey, next shift, you know, let's try it all again. <laughs> Nobody wants to kill their canary. You know, it's, it's, it's I, I think it's really wonderful. In fact, that they did that. Oh, of course. Of yes. course. Well, Richard Alley, um, I'm hoping me and you don't talk for a long, long time. Not because I don't enjoy talking to you. I do. You're one of our, our best guests. But uh, 
it's always under these bad circumstances. So thanks for coming back on and explaining this to us. Well, it's my pleasure. And maybe we'll find a good one to talk about. Take care. I hope so, too. I love talking to Richard Alley. And this next conversation should be good as well. I'm going to be talking to Zach Stein from Carbon Collective, a company that helps you get your IRAs, brokerage accounts, trusts, and more invested in green, sustainable stock and bond portfolios built for solving climate change. Zach Stein, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So you work for a company called Carbon Collective. So tell us about your position there, what your company does. Tell us all about Carbon Collective. Absolutely. So I uh, am honored to be one of the founders of Carbon Collective. And we started it because we and many around us couldn't find a way to align our retirement savings with building the world that we actually wanted to retire into, particularly around climate change. And so that is... we wanted to build a place where that would still be a safe and smart investment, but where we would be driving as much impact around what to us is the issue of our time. So uh, why investing? Why do you see investing as an important lens to tackle and to view an issue like climate change? It's a great question. There are many lenses to look at when it comes to solving climate change, but investing might be one of the most important ones. The analyses differ, but Uh, according to the best laid plans of what we need to do in order to solve climate change. And when I say solve climate change, I don't mean we've completely removed all the damage that's happened, but it's we've reached a world where our civilization is running without emitting carbon. So we're going to have that chance to do that repair and that remediation and getting back to pre-industrial levels of greenhouse gases. Um, For that to happen, the only way that that happens is we have to build. We have to build a lot in order to do that. Um, plans range from us needing as a globe to be investing $5 trillion to $9 trillion more dollars per year into scaling climate trans- uh, solutions for that transition. A lot of these are pretty obvious, like where we get our electricity from. We need to switch that to uh, no, no longer burning coal and natural gas to it. There's a lot of good news there. Solar, wind, and batteries as a combination is the cheapest form of electricity in many places in the world. So it's things like that that needs to happen. And that's why this lens of investing, at, we started Carbon Collective, to try and give an entry point because it could be really hard as an individual to say, okay, I get that. But how do I participate? How does my 401k participate um, in that? All right. So if I have my investment portfolio, then I would hire somebody from Carbon Collective and then you would sort of direct my investments towards companies that are doing good towards climate change? Yeah, it's pretty close to it. So we're an online only automated investment advisor, which means that it's pretty simple and it's also pretty cheap. Um, So what you would do, let's say you have an IRA um, somewhere, a retirement account that's uh, sitting there. Maybe someone's helped you manage it or you've managed it yourself. You could open a new IRA with Carbon Collective and we could roll over that old IRA into it. And then we would allocate it into one of our climate focused portfolios. Um, we have two types. We have our core, which is a similar risk and reward to a generic index based portfolio that takes our divest from fossil fuels and related industries, reinvest into the companies solving climate change, and then broadly hold the rest of the market to engage them. That's that strategy there. And then we also have our climate only, which is just investing in climate solutions and green bonds. 
Um, and that's for folks who are looking for and open to a higher risk and a uh, higher reward in a less diversified portfolio, but where every dollar is going into climate solutions. So give us some general sense of the rubric you use for the types of companies that you would want to invest money in and the ones that you would want to avoid. Absolutely. So when it comes to climate change, and this is a problem that a lot of people have with this, what is sustainable investing? There's a lot of different answers to that. And for us, we boil it down to if it's not aligned with solving climate change, which to us is the greatest threat to our sustainability as a planet, um, then it can't be labeled as sustainable. And for us to solve climate change, what we have to do is both very complicated and very simple. We need to dramatically wind down investments in fossil fuels and dramatically wind up investments into climate solutions over the next 30 years. So we take that and apply that to our investment portfolios. When we look at the total stock market, about 20% of it are sectors and industries that are technologically dependent upon fossil fuels for their core business. So for them in 20 years to operate as they are doing now, either a miraculous technology will have to come or they will have to change industries. This is like an oil company turning into a solar company. So we divest from that 20% oil companies, coal, petrochemicals, cement, steel, airplanes, etc. We give that share. So that's the wind down investments in fossil fuels. We then give that share to the companies that are building solutions to climate change. We, it's our job to go and find the best sources of independent information for that. So we look at groups like Project Drawdown, um, where they've laid out what are the top solutions to climate change, broad ranging. We then take that and say, okay, okay, that's what they're the experts in. Let's now apply that to the publicly traded investing market and see what is every single company that is building a solution to climate change. And then we remove those that generate more revenue from products or services that are specifically built for the fossil fuel industry. And to us, we only use revenue as a guide there. We don't use climate commitments or anything like that because talk is still really cheap in this space and actions are really matter. So that's the 20% that we divest from, reinvest, and then the 80% we broadly hold in our core portfolios. And we do that to engage these companies. Um, An example that I like to use is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is not an environmentally friendly business. They treat their watersheds poorly. They use a ton of plastic. They emit fossil fuels in the creation of their products. In the world where we solve climate change, where we have a civilization that runs without greenhouse gas emissions, Coca-Cola can still sell me a Coke. They can do so. It's a brown, sugary, bubbly uh, beverage that will use the secret recipe. They just will do it in a way that's 100% powered by renewable energy and and a fleet that is 100% electric cars or powered by green hydrogen. And hopefully, they are now protecting their watersheds and investing in them instead of abusing them. That means to us that this is the type of company that we need to engage as shareholders because we're not going to them and asking to do the, them to do something that's almost impossible. We're not saying change your core business like it would be saying to an oil company. Right. We're saying change how your business is powered with it. And that's actually how we decrease demand for fossil fuels. And this is, I think, an ongoing debate in the climate community of should we use that engagement, those votes? Should we go focus on those who are maybe at the root of the problem, the fossil fuel companies who are, you know, digging up all this oil and providing it to us or those who are consuming it 
on the other end, on the demand side of it. To us, the answer is very obvious on the demand side, that the only way we get ExxonMobil to get out of oil is to make oil a bad business. And so that's very much our strategy. So is that your answer when somebody comes to you and they say, well, why not just invest in fossil fuel companies so that we can then have a vote and change them from within? Is that what your your answer is sort of changing the demand side of that? Exactly. It's really hard for us to play out. And I really I encourage people to push back on this and engage with it on it. There's in kind of the world of Wall Street, there's like, well, if you lose it, you don't get the opportunity to engage. But we don't ask the next question of what would that engagement get us? And let's take the extreme. Let's say that ExxonMobil, through shareholder engagement, became a green energy company. All right, that that would help in that investment gap that we talked about that needs to go into climate solutions. But would it actually lead to less oil being pumped out of the ground? It's hard for us to see that it would because ExxonMobil, they're not going to like openly declare a fire sale on all of their assets. They would sell them slowly um, because they want to recoup as much as they can for that in that business transition. And then once they were sold, they people wouldn't be buying them unless like, maybe the Nature Conservancy was buying them, which would be an interesting strategy. Uh, but they'd be buying them to use them and to extract oil from that site. And so, so long as there was demand for that oil, it would just be someone else pumping it and someone mm-hmm. else buying it. And so it's hard to see while it might be a real feel good victory. Uh, it's kind of like David standing up to Goliath and, you know, with the ways that they've lied on climate and, and all of these other things, it's not that they've done so much wrong. Um, it's hard for us to see how that actually moves the needle and potentially could have a very significant opportunity cost of where we could be using that energy and those dollars um, for a much greater likelihood of success. Uh, so you say it's solvable and I, I believe you and I've, I've read the stuff from the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science and others who, who detail how that could be done. Uh, we actually had somebody on the show uh, recently who was talking about the potential for a big ice shelf collapse in one part of Antarctica. And then I find that another part of Antarctica has just seen some collapse. So as you see these, um, these events occurring, you see these reports coming out, you know, Glasgow, all the rest. Um, I know you say it's solvable. I know you say it's it's manageable, but it's also a ticking clock, right? Absolutely. Um, I when I say it's solvable, I don't mean it will be solved, or that it's easy, yeah, <laughs> or th- or that it's easy. Um, but I think it's so important for us to hold on to and imagine what that world is going to be like, because it's when enough of us hold on to that and can picture it, that's when we give ourselves that chance of reaching and getting there. Um, and so, and there's so many reasons that make it hard to hold on to that. When you see those reports and I go through phases where I'm like eating it all up and I go through phases of being like, I literally can't, I I, I just can't read about that right now. Um, because you're right. The track that we're on right now is by 2100, we will live in a world of three degrees C of warming. What gives me hope Well, let me say what's really scary about that world. The scary parts of that world and what we're seeing is the exponential drivers of climate change, where you have the ash from the wildfires of I'm here on the West Coast falling in the Arctic and that black falling on the white ice, attracting more sunlight and actually warming up the ice and causing it to melt faster, which raises sea levels even 
faster and further melts permafrost, which will release more methane that's been trapped in it, etc. Terrifying stuff. What gives me hope is that we also have some exponentials on our side for solving this. Um, when we look at some of the market forces that are underway, it's not universal across climate solutions, but there's some really promising ones. Um, in electricity, as I said, solar, wind, and batteries is the cheapest form of electricity in many places in the world. And it's only going likely to get cheaper because the manufacturing for these systems is in some ways just getting started with it. And so, again, if we say, all right, Dollars are going to like follow the cheapest way to um, do something. Then we don't need to see any broad change in the world for that to happen, and for it to start doing so in a much more carbon-friendly way. Um, same with electric cars. Uh, over half of the oil that we use in the U.S. that is consumed in the U.S. is on our roadways mm. between cars, uh, our individual cars, and big rigs. Um, and we have a technology that is just fundamentally better than internal combustion engine cars. Electric cars, they're faster, they are safer, they're roomier, they can tow more, they can drive for over a million miles, they cost way less to maintain, you can charge them at your house, and soon you're going to be able to buy them for less than an internal combustion engine car. That's just a better technology. And when we see better technologies like that come around, the rate of adoption is exponential when it hits that point. Um, and you have a full switch. The one that's commonly talked about is th what happened before, the introduction of the automobile replacing the horse and buggy. Mm -hmm. We're in a similar point now, and it can be somewhat hard to see that, um, but we're seeing that switch. There's a lot of things that can get in the way of that, um, whether they be kind of political or ideological that might delay that full adoption, but the market forces are there. Um, and it's uh, it's only a matter of time before it's much more expensive and you have to be making a deliberate financial choice to drive a gas-powered car. Now, uh, Carbon Collective believes that sustainable investing will outperform over the next three decades, which I'm sure every investor wants to hear. So uh, why do you say that? Yeah. So and I, I like to make this very clear. This is a long-term view that we're taking. It's decades long. Um, we aren't trying to say, oh, we're going to buy and sell stocks to always try and beat month over month. No, we're taking a deliberate approach. Um, and it's what I was just alluding to. Um, you'll agree with us if you fundamentally agree that fossil fuels are an industry that is in decline. Um, when we, I use that example that I just talked about with electric cars and oil, half of the oil in the US, their market share is is going to be shrinking for that, of where that oil is going to be used. And there's not like there's a bunch of other opportunities that are emerging for oil to be used. That's why oil companies are trying to figure out, oh, well, maybe we could use natural gas to create hydrogen in the hydrogen economy. And then we'll just capture the excess carbon from that. Again, a technology that has never been proven at scale, despite the tens of billions of dollars invested into it. So if you fundamentally believe that over a long time period, it doesn't make sense to hold a declining industry, and it does make sense to hold industries that are fast growing and poised to eat up their market share, then investing in a way that mirrors that when it comes to fossil fuels and the technologies that are replacing them makes a lot of sense. So that is kind of in a nutshell, why we think from that far zoomed out view, we believe that we would see outperformance over that timescale. Can you give our uh, listeners a sense of some of the sort of model companies in your portfolio, ones that um, 
you know, are really sustainable or are good investments, ones that um, are exemplars for us to think about? Yeah. So we take an approach in our portfolio building where if you pass our ethical parameters, then we just wait by market cap. Um, and what you're in, in those climate solutions. Um, so we don't specifically look at like, oh, this company is also doing like really amazing things and mm-hmm. let's give it an additional weight or share or something like that, or it's 100% carbon neutral already. Um, that is where we want to use our engagement with them. These are our friends. They are building a climate solution. It does not mean they're perfect. Tesla has been amazing for the climate movement. And it still has a long way to go in terms of its circular economy, how it's treating its workers, where it's sourcing its lithium from, its own carbon emissions as a company. That is where for us, we still need to engage with them and be partners to be pushing them towards that um, as much as possible. So um, I, I think, you know, some of the companies that we're excited about and the spaces we're excited about seeing, like I personally am excited by plant-based meats. I, mm-hmm. I think that we are just, we're still at the tip of the iceberg um, of what we're seeing there. Again, we're not making any bets on that. We're just letting the market dictate what level of market share that's in, but it's an area that I'm really interested um, in tracking and seeing. So there's a, a number, if you go and check out our website, we actually have a, a entire database. If you could see every single climate solution stock that we have, there broken out by categories. And I think it's like 30 categories um, or something like that. And you can see why everything is in there. Um, and to us, it's a level of transparency that was really exciting to put together. And I think should be pretty refreshing for people who are used to looking at something like that and being like, why is this company in here? Now we're not done with the interview yet, but uh, real quick, why don't you give them that web address? It is carboncollective.co.co. All right. And we'll do that again before we leave here. But um, so uh, what has the, been the response to Carbon Collective? I mean, I've seen you get some good press. I, I was reading an article from Bloomberg, I think, that was uh, saying some really nice things about you. So what's the response been from uh, investors, from the market, from the press? Yeah, Um we're pretty, we've been pretty honored that it's been quite positive so far. Um, our goal of what we want to try and bring at Carbon Collective is a place for people who are really pissed off about greenwashing, um, who feel like they've been jerked around and not been given clarity or clear answers in this. And to have someone say like, okay, finally, someone is doing the hard work here and is doing that in a really earnest way. Um, and we're real people. Uh, we are here. There's a button on our website called talk to a human. And if you press <laughs> it, you can book a meeting with us and talk with us and go through your concerns. And that's very much the ethos that we try and operate under. And we find that that is just as refreshing as what we're doing on the investment front as well. Um, we care a lot about this. And for us, so much of the relationship that we build with our clients happens right at the beginning. Um, it's our product is relatively set and forget. Once you move that IRA over, you might contribute to it, but you're not going to be asking a bunch of questions about it. So it really makes sense for us to make sure that you have your questions, you feel answered, you feel held in that process. And I think that as much as what we're building and the message that we're sending in our theory of change has really resonated with people and had them feel excited to be a member. So you mentioned this term greenwashing um, as a sociologist. It's one that I've uh, heard quite often. And anybody who's uh, sort of had their ear to the ground on this debate has heard quite often, but I'm not sure that it's something that uh, many of our listeners maybe are aware of. So 
tell us what greenwashing is, why it would make you so angry, and what are some of the things to look out for for a company that possibly is uh, sort of um, just giving, you know, saying things about climate change without really being committed to the cause. Exactly. Um, I think we all have experienced this emotion. When someone says, do as I say, not as I do, our response is basically F you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what greenwashing is in a nutshell. It is uh, having a wide gap between the way that you're talking about your company from a green or sustainable perspective, and then what you actually do. There's a level of covering up. Um, An example of this is BP, is British Petroleum, is currently being sued in the UK. They ran a uh, quite expensive and extensive advertising campaign in 2019 in the UK, showing ads about how they were installing electric chargers across the country and things like that, really trying to position BP as showing, hey, we are partners of yours in the climate transition, and we're actually helping lead this. So that's the image that they're trying to plant in people's mind. The problem is that the reality is that as of 2021, 96% of their investment dollars was still going into fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And only 4% was going into clean or alternative energy. We've seen this with Exxon running all these commercials about their algae-based fuels They want to produce something like 10,000 barrels of oil a year from that by 2030. That is like such a tiny minuscule percent of what, you know, a fraction of a percent of what they produce overall. They just don't, they omit to show the comparison. And so that is that type of greenwashing where it is a delay tactic. It's a, it's saying, Hey, I feel the pressure. I'm going to tell you something that might make you feel good enough to relieve the pressure while I just get to keep doing what I was doing before. All right, Zach. So before we go, uh, real quick, how did you come to being so interested in climate change? Uh, I've known my co-founder since we were four years old. We grew up in a rural area. We were in nature a lot. Uh, my background, both of our backgrounds have been in sustainability in different ways. And for me, it was being in the Bay Area and growing up here. And fire season was not a thing until it suddenly was every single year. And that combined with the 2018 IPCC report which said we have 12 years to have our emissions was that clarion call of saying, oh, this is not an issue for my children. This is an issue for me. Yeah. Having to flee your home from fire, you know, that can be a pretty good motivator. Yeah. Yeah. Or just inhaling (laughs) smoke for two months out of the year when you literally never did, you know, my entire time growing up here. All right. Zach Stein, get one more time. Give us your website carboncollective.co 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 we'll put it in the show description go visit see all the good work they're doing zach stein thank you so much for joining the program today thank you so much for having me this was fun thanks for listening before you leave please go to the show description and subscribe to the connor's newsletter it is free it is awesome you'll be part of our growing community of reasonable americans so Go to the show description and subscribe to the Connors newsletter. See you next time. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares?
about the clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.